theyeshiva.net. Good evening, everybody. Shavua Tov, Agutavach. You are tuned in to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's new weekly radio show, and this is actually our first one. So, Mazel Tov, and welcome to all who are joining us for this hour every single Mitzvah Shabbos Saturday night from 10 to 11 p.m. at the Nachum Siegel radio network. So welcome all to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly radio show. And tonight we are going to begin by exploring a topic that is quite relevant to many people, namely how to create a happy marriage. You can call in with your questions or remarks or objections to 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444 to ask any questions or make any remarks or suggestions. Or you can email to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. That's rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. So let's begin with a question sent by email. A very interesting question. And the question that was asked is... If in my marriage I'm finding a conflict between my relationship with my spouse and my relationship with God, which one should prevail? In other words, the way I understood the question, if there is a conflict in my marriage, I'm feeling that my relationship with my spouse is somehow compromising my spirituality or my faith or my religious commitment How do I deal with it? So, my dear friends, let me give you one perspective. It's extremely interesting that in this week's Torah portion, in the portion of Truma, the Torah describes what is known as the Kruvim, the holiest item in the sanctuary known as the Ar and the Ark, which contained the tablets with the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Adibris, had above it a kapoiris, a golden lid. And from the kapoiris, they hammered out two cherubs, two kruvim, which were essentially golden-winged creatures. One was male and one was female, gazing at each other. And the way the Torah puts it is that these two golden cherubs coming out from the lid on top of the ark should be perseik nafayim lamayla meaning they should be winged and their wings should be soaring, spread out upwards like a bird flying. And then the Torah adds, Ufneim ish el and their faces should gaze at each other. This male and female golden cherub on top of the ark should be gazing at each other. And I think perhaps this answers the question of this emailer. Because... Let's think for a moment about this. We're dealing with the holiest chamber in the holiest place of the world, the epicenter of the universe, the Mishkan, the sanctuary, and later the Beis HaMikdash. Inside this holiest place, you have an Aaron, you have an Ark. And inside the Ark, you have the Luchay Sabris, the tablets with the Ten Commandments. But these are all concealed. Nobody saw the luchas. They were in the box, in three boxes. On top of it was a lid. The only item that was actually visible and conspicuous in this holiest chamber was two creatures, a female and male, looking at each other. And Hashem tells Moshe, God tells Moses, I will speak to you from between these two cherubs. From this space, between these two winged creatures, these two golden children, they looked like children, Rashi says, a male and a female, this is where I will communicate to you from. And indeed, throughout the 40 years, according to the Jewish tradition, all of the mitzvahs, all of the communication between Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu, between God and Moses, happened from this location. God's voice was communicated from this space between the two cherubs. What does this really mean? 
You have on one side, you have the male, you have the female. Gazing at each other, we have your relationship between the man and the woman, which as the commentators explain, every marriage is a mirror and a metaphor and a reflection of that relationship between God and the Jewish people, between heaven and earth, between the spiritual and the physical, between the soul and the body. And what God is telling Moses is, do you know where I am found? I am found in the space that spouses create for each other. In the space between the man and the woman, in that very space that we create for each other in our relationships, because every relationship necessitates that I create space for you, and you create space for me. It's in that space where I am found. And even if you may think that your wings will be soaring upward, representing the fact that you are searching and yearning and pining to go higher and higher and yet higher, don't turn away your face from the other person. Don't allow your search for transcendence to take you away from gazing and focusing on the other person. Because ultimately in our world, we encounter God through our genuine relationships with other people, especially with those who we enter into the covenant of marriage. So if a relationship with Hashem is taking us away from our marriage, or we feel that our marriage is taking us away from our relationship with God, we have to go back and revisit our paradigms. Because what does it mean? That your wings are soaring upward? It means that the face must still gaze at the other. Yes, life is about an intimate relationship with God. But that relationship, those wings flying towards heaven, should never cause you to detach from people, especially to detach, to disrespect, to denigrate, to belittle, to be insensitive to your own loved ones. So what I would suggest to you is you have to go revisit the paradigms because perhaps the greatest way you can worship God and you can have a relationship with God is by respecting your spouse, by loving your spouse, and by having a very happy relationship with your spouse. This brings me to another question. And the other question by email is, how do I deal with flaws that I discover in my spouse? Hmm. How do I deal with flaws that I discover in my spouse? So, there's a lot to say about this, but I'm going to share with you a beautiful story. I heard this story from a rabbi who has a shul near where I grew up on New York Avenue in Brooklyn. And this rabbi, whose name is Rabbi Chaim Rubin, told me that he heard this story from his baba, his grandmother, who heard it from her grandmother, who heard it from the person it happened to. He is a grandson of a man known as the Hilke Tzanzerov, the Rebbe of Tzanz, known as Rabbi Chaim Halberstam of blessed memory, the Tzanzeruv, or as many know him as the Divrei Chaim. Reb Chaim Halberstam, when he was a youngster, he was obviously, he was an Ili, he was a brilliant young man, he was one of the great Hasidic masters and great Torah scholars of his generation, 19th century. And Reb Chaim Tzanzer was learning in a yeshiva in Poland. One of the great Ga'inim, one of the great Torah giants of the generation is somebody known as the Baruch Tam, who was the Rav, the rabbi of the city of Leipnik, known as the, known as the Baruch Tam, Baruch Frankel to Umim, and he had a daughter. His daughter's name was Rachel Fege. And Rachel Fege, this is what her grandson told me, that he heard this from his grandmother, who heard it all the way back from Rachel Fege. Rachel Fege was known by those, I guess, who were the experts as an extraordinary young woman on all levels, spiritually, physically, emotionally. She was a priceless gem. And her parents, her father was a great Rav, a great Poisik, a great Gon, a great teacher. The Baruch Tam and his wife were looking for an appropriate Shidduch, an appropriate match for their daughter. So, he goes out to the best yeshivas. That's how they used to do it then. 
to search for the most appropriate, suitable student for his daughter. And who does he meet? He goes into one of the yeshivas and he asks the Rosh Hashiva, he says, tell me and show me the best and the brightest and the kindest. And he says, ah, here's the boy, Chaim Halberstam. And he meets this Chaim Halberstam, who was a young boy at the time. People got married, were quite young at the time. And he speaks to him for a few hours. He's blown away. He's blown away by his wisdom, by his knowledge, by his refinement, by his sensitivity, by his spirituality, by his ethical character, his demeanor, his disposition. And he offers him to enter into the covenant of marriage with his daughter. Chaim Halberstam agreed, and his future father-in-law wished a mazel tov. He comes home, he wishes Mazel Tov to his wife, he wishes Mazel Tov to his daughter, he extols the virtues of their future son-in-law, everything seems so dandy and beautiful, Gvaldik. Sometime later, his wife turns to him and says, listen, you know, you went to visit this boy once, and based on one visit with him, you decided that he's a good shidduch for our daughter, I don't know. I'm very concerned, I think we have to investigate a little more. What would you like me to do? His wife says, why don't you send some other messengers to go see him, to go talk to him? You have to get to know a boy much better if you're going to marry him off to your daughter. Chaim says, okay. And he sends two, uh, the Baruch Tam says, okay, I stand correct. And he sends two of his greatest students, his greatest disciples, to go down to the yeshiva and once again interview, visit, scrutinize, examine this young groom, Chaim Halberstam, and they come. And they spend time with him, and they come back to the future father-in-law, the Baruch Tam. He says, no. They say, listen, Rebbe, as far as his character, and as far as his knowledge, and as far as his Torah, it's awesome. But we don't know if you realize something. He says, what, what? Do you realize that this man is crippled? He's lame. He's lame. The Baruch Tam said, no, I didn't realize. What happened? When he went the first time to visit him, they were sitting in a conversation. He was sitting, and the young boy was sitting. He did not see him standing. He did not see him walking. He did not notice his bodily defect. Now, that the second time when they went, they saw him standing, they saw him walking, and they discovered his lameness. The Baruch Tam was devastated. His daughter was a beauty. His daughter's physique, his daughter's stature, on all levels was gewaldic. It was extraordinary. It seemed so cruel and unfair to put her into such a relationship. On the other hand, he was a great rabbi. He already proposed it to this boy. He made a commitment. They shook hands. He could get out of it. He could break up the relationship. But he felt completely torn. He shared it with his wife. The tears were flowing like water. They didn't know what to do. What do you do in such a situation? It was so uncomfortable. He felt that to break up the marriage would be unethical. On the other hand, to preserve the relationship would be equally unethical and unfair to his daughter. And so as they're going back and forth, what should they do? They already set up a time for the wedding. They already met the families. It was it was really, really tough situation. A little while before the wedding, as they're still torn, one day there's a knock on the door of the Baruch Tam. And who's at the door? His future son-in-law, this young man, Reb Chaim Halberst. This lame boy. He looks at his future father-in-law and he says, listen, you can break up the engagement. You did not know this was based on ignorance and cluelessness. There was no ill intent. I will have no resentment. There is only forgiveness and understanding for your position. After all, there's no question you did not know about the facts. And you went into this blindly, and it's completely not your fault, it's my fault. And I have no complaints to you if you break up the relationship. His future father-in-law was very moved, thanked him. And then Chaim said, but I ask you one thing before. Can you allow me to see my kala? Let me see my bride privately for a few minutes. And then whatever you guys decide, 
I completely respect. If you want to break up the engagement, we move on as though nothing happened. And even though it was unacceptable at the time, this wasn't a regular tradition, you have to understand the nature and the culture and the religiosity of these communities. The Baruch Tam agreed to this young man meeting his daughter Rachel Fick. And they went into a room. <coughs> he introduces himself. Obviously she's heard a lot about him. This is the first time she met him. And they shmooze, they conversed a little bit. And then Reb Chaim Tzanzer, Reb Chaim Halberstam, turns to this young woman. And he asks her if there's a mirror in the room. She says, of course, there's a mirror. And she points to the edge of the room where a mirror stands. And he says, do you mind walking over to the mirror? And she says, no. She walks over to the mirror. And here I have to share with you a little insight. You know, for us, the physical world and the spiritual world are two separate universes and there's an absolute gulf and barrier between them, maybe like the barrier, the border between Israel and Syria. But for tzaddikim, the border between the spiritual world and the physical world is maybe like the border between the United States and Canada. You show a passport and you go into Canada and maybe sometimes you don't even have to show a passport. Depends what type of tzaddik you are. Chaim Halberstam, the Heiliket Sanzerov, was one of the greatest tzaddikim in Poland. So when he asks his bride, he says, go over to the mirror. She says, sure. And she goes over to the mirror. And when she's standing in front of the mirror, she suddenly gives a scream. She shouts, Oi! What happened? As she takes a look in the mirror, suddenly she sees topsy-turvy situation. She is lame, and her groom, Chaim, the young man standing right near her in that room in front of the mirror, is standing tall, erect, healthy, great stature, great physique. She's frightened. Reb Chaim calms her down. And Reb Chaim says, sit down, relax, don't worry. She goes away from the mirror and everything is returned to its previous situation. She's now wondering what is going on. What is this voodoo? And Chaim tells her, he says, let me explain to you something. He says, you know, before I was born, the Gemara says, our sages say in the beginning of Mesech the Sait, the beginning of Tractate Sait, right the first page, that our Bayim Yayim Kaidim Yitzir Savlat, 40 days before the conception of a fetus, they already announce in heaven, Bas Ploini Leploini, the daughter of so and so is Bashert to become the match of so and so. That's what they announce in heaven. Before I was born, I asked in heaven, I said, show me my match, show me the bas plane, I want to see my soulmate. I want to see. They told me, heaven doesn't allow for that. You know, there's a policy here. You don't get to examine your merchandise in heaven before you're born. This is your bashert, this is your bashert. I insisted. I said, if you want me to go down to this world, if you want my soul to come down, I have to see my shidduch, I have to see my match. I saw you. I saw you. I saw your soul. He's telling this young woman. And I noticed, I realized that your soul is such a type of soul that's going to come into a body that's going to be lame. And I turned to the master of the universe and I said, God Almighty, I want to ask you a big favor. And the favor I want to ask you is I want you to reverse the situation. Let me go into a body that is defected and it'll be lame. You know why? It's so much more difficult for a woman than for a man. I'm going to sit and learn in yeshiva. I'm going to be a great Talmud Chachim. I'm going to dedicate my life to Torah. So I'll have a bodily defect. Listen, it's not exciting. It's not comfortable. But I'll be able to deal with it far more easy than if my wife has to deal with it. Do me a favor. Allow me to experience that blemish and allow her allow her body to be impeccable and flawless. They asked me if I was certain and I said I am absolutely certain. 
And thus, I was born the way I was born, and you were born the way you were born. And now when you walked over to the mirror, for a split moment, you got an image of the way things were in heaven originally, before my request. The young woman was obviously deeply moved by what she just heard. She walked out of the room. She turned to her mother and father. She said, Mazel Tov, this is my chosin and I am his kala. This is my groom and I am the bride. And indeed, Bezivug Rishon, this was the Tzanzerov's first wife, Rachel Feige. And everyone knows he was lame and she was something out of this world, both physically and spiritually. And her grandson told me the mice, great-great-grandson told me the story, said when his baba told him the story, she was weeping, she was mamish weeping. I'll tell you what I learned from the story. On any level in which you want to understand the story or relate to the story, the way I understand the story is this. Sometimes you look at your spouse and you see a flaw. And sometimes the flaw really irks you, it really bothers you. Before you get angry, before you get upset, before you get annoyed, before you get resentful, stop, meditate, breathe, and think to yourself, it's possible that this flaw is actually yours. And who knows if your spouse didn't accept upon themselves this challenge, this struggle to spear you. So don't look at it as her problem. Don't look at it as his problem. Understand that it's very possible that he took it upon himself so that she doesn't have to deal with it or she took it upon herself so that he doesn't have to deal with it. And therefore, instead of getting annoyed and frustrated, try to find a way in which you can both grow together. And this is, I think, a very important rule in life. In fact... Is a beautiful interpretation of the Baal HaTanya. Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi in Likutei Torah Parshas Baal Loischa that relates to this week's Parsha that the Menor was Miksha Ach Azov Tor. The Menor was har- hammered out of one large piece of gold which made it very complicated because the candelabra in the Mishkan was a very complex and multidimensional piece of furniture and to hammer it out of one piece of gold all the seven branches and all of the intricate designs on each one of the seven branches and the base made it a very complex feat why why was there a need to hammer it out of one piece of gold you can attach it later design the seven branches each one independently and then weld them together afterwards and one of the spiritual explanations is the menorah represents all the different types of souls of Israel because Jewish souls Jewish neshamas are divided into seven branches seven categories corresponding to the seven emotions of chesed which is love and discipline and empathy and victory and uh, submission and connectivity bonding and confidence royalty kingship and each soul has a different primary feature and when the menorah was lit each Branch, each lamp that was lit represented the kindling and the igniting of one of these seven types of souls. And what we have to realize is that we're hammered out of one piece of gold. When you hammer out of one piece of gold, so then that piece which was on the top ends up on the bottom, and the piece that was on the bottom ends up on the top. So sometimes I look at somebody and I say, Eh, Fed, this is a disgrace, and that negativity may be mine, and my goodness may be his or hers. So that's why in a relationship, you have to realize, as Reb Chaim Halberstam was telling his young woman, you know, we're actually one. It's one piece. It's miksha. I think this is one approach and one perspective. Here is another email that just came in. Let me announce how you can send in your emails. RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com That's RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com Or you can call in to 845 354 2444. That's 845-354-2444. You're listening to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Mitzoy Shabbos radio show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Let's read another email that just came in from one of our great listeners. I quote, My wife appears to be on a lower spiritual level than I am. 
we don't share the same ashkafas, the same perspectives, the same views on life. She appears not interested in doing things. She doesn't say blessings like I do. She doesn't say moida'ani with her children. She doesn't wash for bread, etc. If I were to go out with her now, I would not want to marry her. So my question to you is, what do I do about this relationship? Okay, my dear friend, this is a very important question. It's a very good question. And it's actually quite a common question. Because many couples have this struggle in one way or another. Sometimes she laments that he is not spiritually engaged as she is. He laments, as in your case, that she's not spiritually engaged as he is. And naturally, it's very frustrating. It's extremely annoying. It's extremely frustrating. Every single case is different and unique and distinct. What I am going to share here are a few general guidelines, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is the beginning and the end of the conversation because you have to tune in individually to every couple situation. But let me say this. In life, generally, we cannot change other people. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the great founder of the Musser movement, Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin Salanter, whose yard set was just a few days ago, they say in his name the following. He said, When I was young, I was determined to change the whole world. And then I got a little older and I realized I can't change the whole world. I decided, you know what, I'm going to change my entire city. And then I got older, I realized I can't change my entire city. I decided I'll change my entire community. I got a little older and I realized I can't transform my community. I decided I will transform my entire family. He says, and now I'm an old man and I realized I can't even change my family. And I decided that I'm going to work on changing myself. And if I can change myself, I'll be doing well. But then he added, and if I would have had the seichel, if I would have had the wisdom in the beginning of my youth, the beginning of my life, to focus on changing myself, then perhaps by now I would have changed the entire world. There's a very profound insight here. And that is, I cannot change anybody in the world. I can't change my spouse. I can't change my mother-in-law. I can't change my father-in-law. I can't change my siblings. I can't change my parents. I can't change my relatives, my friends, my students, my partners. I cannot change other people. There's one person I can change, and that's me. I can work on myself. My advice to you, my dear friend, is you work on yourself. What do I mean by you working on yourself? Don't try to be your wife's mentor, your wife's rabbi, your wife's therapist, your wife's guru, your wife's teacher, your wife's rov. You work on yourself. Work on yourself to be happy, to be wholesome, to be full of respect, to have a happy and wholesome relationship with your soul, with your God, and to fulfill the injunction of our sages who commanded us in Masechta Yevomis and the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch bring it, and I quote the famous words of the Rambam, Tzivu chachamim sheyehei adam oyev es ishtoi kegufoi umechabdo yoysim egufoi. The sages have instructed that one ought to love his wife like he loves himself and respect his wife more than he respects himself. Demonstrate tremendous affection and respect to your spouse Simply, for starters, because she's your spouse. Second of all, because she's the mother of your children. And third of all, there's a lot to respect in your spouse. Even though there are some things you disagree about her behavior. But you work on yourself. Don't get caught up in somebody else's life. Don't make calculations for other people. The same Rabbi Yisrael Salanta once said, you worry about your spirituality and about your wife's material state. Be there for her. Help her. Love her. Genuinely, not as a trick, not as a method. Create a powerful relationship. And my 
gut instinct is that if she sees from you a genuine relationship with her, with yourself, with God, this will perhaps inspire her to grow in Yiddishkeit. Because I'll tell you what often happens. I don't know about your case because you weren't specific and I don't even know who you are. I just read your email. What happens often in relationships is, I don't know how to say this so nicely, so I'll say it bluntly. People use God as a missile against their spouse. Listen to me. People often employ religion as a tool to justify a dysfunctional marriage. Meaning, very practically, if I'm not in the mood of being home, if I don't want to stay home tonight, I, want to, I don't want to be with my wife, I want to help with my kids, religion gives me great opportunities. I have to run to Shul, to Davin. I have to run to a shear. I have to run to an event, I have to run to, to a dinner, and it's all for a holy purpose, it's all for God. You know the old joke they say, Gewaldig, the Gemara says in Masech Tebrachis in the fourth chapter, Avram Avinu instituted the morning prayers, Yitzchak instituted Mincha the afternoon, and Yaakov instituted Meir of the evening. Why Yaakov the evening? The evening services is the first because the night begins the day in Judaism. So Yaakov should be, Yaakov, Avram should be Mayriv, Yitzchak Shachris, and Yaakov Mincha, because Mincha is the last prayer of the day. So they say an old anecdote. Avram Avinu had one son Yishmael, and then later he had one son Yitzchak. Yitzchak had one son Yaakov, and he had one son Ace of twins. Yaakov Avinu Baruch Hashem, he had 12 sons, and he had a daughter Dina. So Yaakov Avinu came home from the field. You know what happened? Leah came over to him and said, Yaakov, I'm glad you're home. Let me tell you the mice. First of all, Reuven has an Eric. Shimon has the flu. Levi has the virus. Yehuda is mamish in a bad mood. Yisachar didn't take a bath in a week. And Zvulun hasn't seen you in three and a half weeks. Never mind Don, Naftali, God, Usher. They're not doing well in school. Therefore, listen. The first thing I want you is to bathe the kids. I want you to spend time with them. I want you to tell them a good night story. I want you to lie with them. I want you to give them attention and spend time with them. What did Yaakov Avinu say? Yaakov said, Mayriv, Mayriv, I got to run to Mayriv. If I was Yaakov, I would also be Mesach and Phyllis Mayriv. I would also do Mayriv. You understand, it's an anecdote, but you get, my friends, sometimes we use Judaism, we use religion as a tool to justify a non-wholesome marriage. Because it gives us an easy crutch, it gives us an easy excuse not to communicate, not to have a powerful relationship, and we can always blame it on Judaism, and often women feel this, or husbands feel this, and therefore they resent the religion that is being used as a crutch to create separation between them. So my advice to you is make sure that's not happening. Let your spouse see that your relationship with Hashem is a cause for more love in the house. Let your wife see that your relationship with God is causing you to be closer to her. Let Hashem see that your involvement in davening and learning and moida'ani and brachas makes you more vulnerable, more humble, more honest, more loving, more genuine, more ready to confront your own demons and to be honest. It makes you and allows you to create more space for another person because if you have a real relationship with God, doesn't that mean you have the ability to transcend your ego and let other people into your life? And my instinct is perhaps when your wife sees what Judaism is doing for you and your marriage by osmosis, not even by words, by your living example, she will become more inspired. But till that point, don't be obsessed with her ruchnius. You focus on your ruchnius and on her gashmius. Which now brings me to another question. And that is, what happens when there is conflict between the husband and the wife? I have my view, and my wife has another view, this email says. I have one perspective, she has another perspective, and we're arguing. What do we do about it? How do we deal? We fight, and we argue, and we holler. My dear friend, here is my advice to you. No hollering in the house. 
There's no raising your voice. There's no screaming in the house. I don't care if you're in a bad mood. I don't care if she's 100% wrong. Or if you're 100% wrong. There's no need to scream and to yell. People have to learn self-control. A house where they're screaming and yelling creates negative energy. It's a house of fear. It's a house of stress. There's no need for it. Let me tell you an extraordinary interpretation of the Nitziv. Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin writes, he has a commentary on Chumash Hamik Dover, and he explains the Pasuk in Bereshis. God says, It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create a helper against him. So the obvious question is, is Chava a helper or is Chava against him? What's the role of the spouse in Judaism, in Torah? Is she an Azer? Is she a helper? Is she connected? Is she against him? So Rashi has one interpretation, but I'll give you the interpretation of the Nitziv. And he says something very powerful. He says, sometimes she becomes the greatest help to him by being against him. Meaning, sometimes the best way through which, in which somebody can help you is by disagreeing with you. Because let's face it, people who agree with us, yes-sayers, don't help us necessarily. They just confirm what we believe to be true. But the people who challenge us the people who question us, the people who turn to us and say, you know, maybe you're wrong, maybe there's another perspective. They actually allow us to grow. They challenge us to expand our horizons. And therefore, my advice to you is that the next time your spouse disagrees with you, instead of getting annoyed and frustrated, see it as an opportunity to expand your horizons, to see life from another perspective. When your husband disagrees with you, ask yourself, interesting, what is he seeing in this situation that's causing him to present this view. And when your wife disagrees with you, do the same thing, and then you will find that the disagreements can actually actually be tools for interesting discoveries, for continue with growth. And don't think this is such a distant and remote and idealistic proposition. Try to do it. In other words, somebody who disagrees with you is not necessarily your enemy. Ezer Kenegdoi. It's one times the greatest help that somebody presents another perspective and it challenges you to be able to see somebody else's life, to understand their life, to see things from their perspective. And it makes you a better person. You know, in halacha, there's a fascinating reflection of this. There's a halacha, there's a law in Shrakte Sanhedrin, and the Rambam brings it in Hilcha Sanhedrin, that Sanhedrin, Shepaschin Kulam Lechayva, Shepaschin Kulam Lechayva, Paitrinoisemiyat. It's an extraordinary law. If the 71 or 23 members of the Supreme Jewish Court open up a trial and everyone immediately says that the person is guilty and has to be given capital punishment. You know what Allah is? They exempt him. He's exonerated. It's very strange. If there's a vote and most of them say guilty and some say innocent, then... The verdict follows the majority. If everybody says guilty, he's exempt. What does this mean? So the Medrash Shmuel in Pirkei quotes and brings a beautiful interpretation. The words of the Rambam are Sanhedrin Kulam They opened up and unanimously said the person is guilty. In other words, there was no counter argument. And because there was no counter-argument, we know that the conversation and the verdict is a flawed verdict. Because you need an opposing view in order to crystallize your view. Because you will never know if your position is based on a parochial, primitive, narrow perspective, or it's actually based on thorough research. If somebody disagrees with you, it gives you an opportunity to go back and revisit your position and make sure your position is coming from a place of maturity and wisdom and depth and research rather than from a place of fear and insecurity and instinctiveness. So therefore, an opposing view and perspective is not a bad thing. It's to be celebrated. Now, what do you do practically about it? What you do practically about it is, there's the magical word in, word in every marriage, and it's called compromise. Compromise, compromise, compromise. You know, they say in old word, the mezuzah, 
is di- placed diagonally on each door. Why diagonally? Because among the halachic authorities is a big argument, should the mezuzah be placed vertically or horizontally? And therefore, in order to fulfill both opinions, as good Jews, we want the cake and we want to eat it too. So we put up the mezuzah diagonally, not vertically, not horizontally. So that's how we include both opinions. Why is it by the laws of mezuzah that we have to include both opinions? Perhaps the mezuzah represents entering into the home. And before you enter into the home, you kiss the mezuzah, which represents God's presence in your home. And when God's presence is in your home, you have to be able to compromise between two opinions. You don't have to go vertically, you don't have to go horizontally. You go diagonally because you ultimately have to make compromises in every marriage. And when you do that, you see the beauty of it, you see the maturity of it. Don't be stubborn, especially stubborn about not very serious and... uh, and vital issues. Welcome to the show. We're now going to continue taking more questions about creating a happy marriage. Tonight we're dealing with creating a happy marriage. And you can call in to this program at 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. We are now taking live telephone calls. Or you can email us. RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. That's RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. And we will be taking your emails. We have gotten a few questions, and we will be taking more questions now. So let's now go to another question by email. And this is quite an interesting question. The emailer wants to know, What do I do when I find myself constantly getting annoyed, (laughs) getting annoyed at my spouse? I don't know if this is coming from a husband who's annoyed with his wife or from a wife who's annoyed with her husband. They say there was once a woman, they asked her, how was marriage? So she said, before I got married, I was incomplete. Now that I'm married, I am finished. Somebody once asked a couple how their relationship is. So he said, when we got engaged, she thought I was brilliant. So she let me do all the talking, and she was doing all of the listening. Then when we got married, she decided I wasn't that brilliant. So we changed positions, and she began doing all of the talking. And I began doing all of the listening. And now, ten years later, we both do all of the talking, and the neighbors do all of the listening. Okay, so that's a little humor, but this person wants to know, what do I do based on the fact that I always find myself getting annoyed with my spouse? Mm. It's a pretty general question, so let me try to zoom in on this question and discuss at least some aspects of it. I assume that this person doesn't just get annoyed out of the blue. I assume this person is getting annoyed from specific situations. So I think there is a general principle that is very valuable to take into mind, to your consideration when you are in any relationship, by the way, this is not only for, you know, marriage is an intense relationship and an ongoing relationship, but this is true about any relationship. You are getting annoyed. Let me give you one, one possible perspective. We're going to do a, a interesting trivia question. And here you will see a very profound psychological teaching in Torah And the way it's expressed to us is not in a conventional way in which an idea is expressed. So I ask all our radio listeners tonight, when is the first time that the term love is mentioned in the Torah? The word love in Hebrew is ahava. Love, ahava, lehov, ahafta. When is the first time that the word love is mentioned? Do you remember? So, it's not Adam and Chava. It doesn't say anywhere that Adam loved Chava, even though I'm sure he did. It's not Noyach and his wife. It's not even Avram and Sarah. Avram and Sarah were very close. It says that when Sarah died, Avram came to eulogize her and weep for her. Rav Hirsch has an extraordinary commentary why the Chav, the cuff of Lefkaisa is so small because of his weeping was so intense and only a little bit of it was recognized. But it doesn't say explicitly that Avraham loved Sarah. 
Where is the first time love is mentioned? Not in Bereshis, not in Noyach, not in Lech Lecha. It's at the end of Ayer in a very surprising scene, the scene of the Akedah. Hashem tells Avraham, Kachna es bincha sichidcha asher ahafta es yitzchak. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Yitzchak, Isaac, and bring him as an offering to me on Mount Moriah. And Avraham Avinu does just that, and then at the last moment, as you know, he is told, Al tishlach yadchalanar, don't lay a finger on this lad, Leave him alone, and Yitzchak's life is speared. The first time love is mentioned in the entire Hebrew Bible, as it's called, the entire Torah is when Hashem sends Avram, Abraham, to go offer his son in the story known as Dakeid, and he says, take the son, your son, your only son, the son that you love. In other words, it doesn't even say Avraham loves Yitzchak. It doesn't say that. It says that God tells Avraham, Hashem tells Abraham, take the son that you love. In other words, the creator of the world is testifying to the fact that this father loves this son. That's the first time love is mentioned. When is the second time love is mentioned in the Torah? Do you remember? It's not in Vayera, it's next week, Chayesara. What happens there? What happens there is Yitzchak marries his wife. Her name is Rivka. And the Torah says in Parshas Chayisara, Vayikach Yitzchak is Rivka, Loyleisha, Vayeavveha. He loves Rivka. Do you see the development of the idea? The first person who is loved is Yitzchak. He's loved by his father. The second person is, who is loved is Rivka. And who is she loved by? She is loved by Yitzchak. Yitzchak loves and therefore... Yitzchak is loved and therefore he loves. Yitzchak is loved by his father Avraham and therefore he's capable of loving his wife Rivka. And so it goes on in Bereshis. Rivka loves her son Yaakov. Yitzchak loves his son Esav. Yaakov loves his wife Rachel. The one who is loved, loves. The first love is from Avram to Yitzchak. The second love is from Yitzchak to Rivka, Yitzchak to his spouse. What does this really tell us, my dear friends? One of the things it tells us is, for me to be able to love you, I have to be loved. Why? The simple reason is, if I was never loved, I don't know what it is, so I can't give it to you. But there's also a deeper reason, and the deeper reason is this. If I don't feel loved, I have a very deep void in me, and therefore I could never love you because I'm always searching for your validation. And therefore, I cannot suspend myself to really tune into you and create space for you. You know why? Because I always need you to compliment me and validate me and tell me that I am good. There's a lovely idea in Kabbalah and Hasidic literature, and it says that the difference between holiness and unholiness is holiness is a mashpia. Unholiness is always amicable. Holiness gives. Unholiness is always parasitic. It always takes. Because if you don't have deep, secure foundations, you never have the luxury to be able to put yourself aside and be there for somebody else because you always have to take and take and take because you're suffering from a void. There is a bottomless pit of insecurity in the core of your psyche that you're always trying to fill. So now when you come home and your wife perhaps speaks to you about how difficult her day was, instead of you listening to her and empathizing with her, all you're really searching for is for her to compliment you and validate you. Now, trust me, getting a compliment is a wonderful thing. And being validated validated is an extraordinary, wonderful experience. But if you need that validation in order to create your identity, meaning 
a compliment is what creates you and criticism of what this is what destroys you, then you can't be in a relationship with anybody because your core is so fragile that if you're not constantly being validated, you're not sure you exist. So therefore you're never in a position where you can give. You're always taking and taking and taking. But Yitzchak was really loved and therefore his core was solid and because his core was solid, he could now put himself aside and be there for somebody else. I want to suggest to you, my dear friend, that it is maybe possible that your core is very weak. And because your core is very weak, you are looking to your wife, to your spouse, as somebody who always has to reassure you of how good you are. And although it's wonderful to compliment your husband, and you should, and it's wonderful to compliment your wife, and you should, but if you're in a position that without that, you feel no identity, you feel no sense of self, it's very hard to be in an important, a good relationship. The Kotzke Rebbe once said in Yiddish, Ich bin ich, weil du bist du, und du bist du, weil ich bin ich, bin ich nicht ich, und du bist nicht du. Aber ich bin ich, weil ich bin ich, und du bist du, weil du bist du, bin ich, ich, und du bist du. Which means, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I, and you are not you. But if I I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you. Then I am I, and you are you. And now we can begin to have a relationship. So in other words, if my I is completely defined by you, and your you is completely defined by I, then there's no I, there's no you. How can I be here for you when I have no I, and my whole I is based on you? So you have to create my I. So how can I be here for you when there's no I without the you? I hope you got that. So therefore, what has to happen in a relationship is, you have to have a core. And what happens if you didn't have a father of Rome who loved you like Yitzchak had a father of Rome who loved? You have to find your core in your relationship with Hashem. We say each morning, in the beginning of all the prayers, Atavarasa. My God, the soul that you have infused, imbued within me is pure, is sacred, is pristine, it's impeccable, it's divine. Your neshama is a chelik mal mamish. Your soul is a fragment, is a piece of God, and because it's a piece of God, so therefore just like God need not be validated, your soul doesn't have to be validated. And when you can live your life from that wholesome, internal, spiritual core, then you can create space for your spouse. You could listen to your spouse. You can empathize with your spouse. You don't always need to be a macabre. You don't always have to receive. You're in a position of giving. Now again, it's wonderful to get compliments. <laughs> I like getting compliments. It's much nicer than getting criticism. What we all know that criticism, constructive criticism, helps you grow. Compliments don't always help you grow. Ultimately, in the long run, compliments are not what you need. Compliments are good. But don't rely on your spouse to feel like a somebody. It doesn't work that way. Sure, when you're down, your spouse lifts you up. And when you're vulnerable, your spouse gives you a place of safety. And when you're just in a bad mood, your spouse can encourage you. But be in a position of a mashpia, be a king, be a leader, be a melech. And therefore you won't be so annoyed. Why are you getting so annoyed? Why are you getting so frustrated? Why is somebody's words or somebody had a difficult day or somebody's had a, is having a stressful moment? It's not about you. You know, some men have this thing that when their wives lament to them about difficult days or difficult feelings or difficult experiences, they feel that their spouses are blaming them. That's not the case in 99% of cases. Women love to share their experiences with their spouses. That's their way of building relationships. A lot of men don't understand this, and I'll explain to you why. Because men have a very different philosophy in life. Men's philosophy in life is when they come home, if they had a stressful day, they don't want to talk about it. Because we have this philosophy in life. It's very simple. It goes like this. It was hard enough for me to experience the day as it was progressing. Now you want me to speak about it? (laughs) No way. I want to go into my cave. I want to sit on my couch. I want to lie in my bed. I want to check my texts, my emails, whatever it is that you like doing. I don't want to speak about my day. 
women often have a very different philosophy. And I don't mean to generalize and say this is the case in everybody, but it's by everybody, but it's true very often, very often. For the woman, she wants to revisit everything that happened during the day. She wants to go back there, and it's not enough to speak about it once. She tells it to her sister once, and then she tells it to the second sister, and then she wants to share it with her mother. And the husband has to understand this. She's not blaming you. She's not telling you you're not a good husband. And if you could just empathize and be there and be present and show compassion and don't be so fragile that when somebody is complaining, it means you don't exist and therefore your only way of responding is through annoyance or through frustration or through anger or through resentfulness. This is coming from your own weakness. Zai stark, zai mensch. Realize your core. And when you realize your core, then your relationship could be so much more wholesome, so much more fat, powerful, and it can be celebrated in a far deeper way. Let's now take another question. You can email your questions to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. We only have a few minutes left to the show, so I don't know how many questions we'll still deal with, but let's at least take another question. You can also call in fast to 845-354-2444. You're listening to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Moitzai Shabbos radio show at the Nachum Siegel Network from 10 to 11 p.m. And the next question is, what is, this is cute, what is the best ingredient to nurture a wholesome relationship? Wonderful. What is the greatest ingredient to nurture a wholesome relationship? I will give you a lot of ingredients, but I will give you a few ingredients. The first ingredient is communication. Communicate about things. Share with your spouse who you are, who, how you're feeling, what you're experiencing. Don't afraid. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Share your soul. Share your heart. Talk about your thoughts. Talk about your struggles. Talk about your feelings. Talk about emotions. Connect in a deep way. Spend time. Communicate with each other. Number two. There's an element of respect. Give respect to the other person. Dedicate time in your own mind to actually tune in to who the other person is. Think about them. You know, your spouse has their own soul, their own personality, their own journey. There's a t-shirt I once saw. I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. Well, it doesn't work that way because it's Yeah, you could learn to worship me and stop existing. But there's an element of respect. Spend time thinking about the fact that my spouse has her own identity. My spouse has his own identity. And let me try to understand it, to tune into it, to be sensitive to it, to relate to it, and to nurture it. These are very important ingredients in marriage. Another thing is, if you disagree, if you're having a challenge, if you're having a difficulty, work it out in a respectful, loving way. Exercise self-control. Don't insult. Don't embarrass. Don't denigrate. Don't scream. Don't holler. The greatest gift you can give your children is loving their other parent. Yes, You support your children, you give them a great education, you provide for them nurture and love and security. But the greatest gift beyond that you can give your child is having them grow up in a loving home, a warm ambiance, an atmosphere of respect, of camaraderie. These are priceless gifts because you may provide your children with the best education which might teach them how to make a good living. But if you love their other parent, you will teach them not only how to make a good living, you will teach them how to live. And I know many people who make a good living, but they don't know how to live. 
There are people who know how to live and they'll already figure out how to make a good living. There's something else I want to tell you as an ingredient and that is when the Torah describes Yitzchak's relationship with his wife Rivka, it's defined in Parshas told us as Metzachik, which means laughing. Yitzchak was jesting with Rivka, his wife. It's the role of humor in a relationship because we know Jews love humor and a relationship needs humor. Humor means you don't take your ego so seriously. You could laugh. And what makes a good joke? An unexpected punchline. If you expect a punchline, you're not going to laugh. What makes a good joke is an unexpected punchline. The more you laugh, the more you can have a good relationship. And if it's unexpected, great. So we now conclude our first radio show we're going to be back and rebroadcast this program Monday, 10 a.m. if you missed this one. See you again next week, Mitzayi Shabbos, 10 o'clock p.m., Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's radio show. Agutavach, have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.